0: President Donald Trump wanted to fire Special Counsel Robert Mueller in June, according to three people familiar with the matter. Trump ultimately relented after White House Counsel Don McGahn refused to carry out the order and threatened to resign. Yesterday, Senator Mark Warner, the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, issued a statement saying, quote, firing the Special Counsel is a red line the president cannot cross. That echoes the warning Warner gave on the Senate floor in December.
1: These truly are red lines, and simply cannot allow them to be crossed.
0: As he arrived in Davos, the president called the story fake news, echoing denials he and his staff have been making for months like this on August 10th.
1: I haven't given it any thought. I mean, I've been reading about it from you people. You say, oh, I'm gonna dismiss him." No, I'm not dismissing anybody.
0: My guest is Jeffrey Kramer, Managing Director at the Berkeley Research Group and a former federal prosecutor. Jeff, there have been reports that Trump was considering firing Mueller for months. In fact, several senators from both sides of the aisle have proposed bills to protect Mueller. So why this shock from so many quarters about this story?
1: I think this is the first time, again, if the report's true and what the reporting has, I think it's three or four uh, individuals uh, who are all telling the same story. This is the first time we've had, uh, let's call it confirmation, or at least a little more than a rumor, uh, that he was thinking about not only firing Mueller, but may have taken steps and asked his White House counsel to reach out to DOJ uh, to do it, which would be the mechanism. So I think it is a bit of a sea change.
0: So what would happen if Trump does decide to fire Mueller?
1: Well, it's an interesting process. The president technically cannot fire uh, Bob Mueller. Uh, the DOJ can, and usually be the attorney general. But unfortunately here, uh, he has recused himself, so it's left to the deputy attorney general. So Rod Rosenstein is the only one who legally can fire uh, Bob Mueller, uh, which is why part of the reporting is that uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Trump may have asked McGahn to reach out uh, to Rod Rosenstein. Um, but the problem is, at least from the president's standpoint, according to Rosenstein in his uh, testimony before Congress, he's fine with Mueller. Mueller has to check in with him periodically, uh, according to the special counsel legislation, and he sees no reason to fire him. So that's where the rubber hits the road, is with the deputy attorney general.
0: Looking at what's called the Saturday night massacre, when President Nixon ordered the independent special counsel, uh, independent special prosecutor Archibald Cox, to be fired, you'd say that if anything like that happened, it would lead to impeachment. But Trump has demonstrated that he can get away with things that most presidents can. And we've seen a Republican effort in the last few months to knock Mueller's investigation as being partisan and to, you know, criticize the FBI so what do you make of that well
1: I mean there are some certainly some similarities the differences are as, as you just indicated um, Times have changed, and you do see a, a politicization, maybe more so than even during the Nixon era, of Republicans repeatedly taking shots uh, at Mueller's investigation, at some of Mueller's team, at the FBI. It's been a pretty steady drumbeat, and I think that's a concerted effort to uh, minimize any results that Mueller uh, brings, be it an indictment or a report that goes to Congress for possible uh, Impeachment proceedings, which is a v- is a strictly political endeavor. It's not a criminal endeavor. It's a legal endeavor. So I think it's a it's an effort by the president's allies to minimize Mueller even before any results are are, uh, are before us.
0: So judging from the people in Trump's inner circle that Mueller has called in, Mueller seems to have gotten far in the obstruction phase of the case. Is an interview with the president, which is being talked about, the final step in that part of the investigation?
1: I think it is. Maybe a little cleanup here and there with other uh, witnesses, but certainly the president would be one of the last people uh, that his team would, uh, would interview. Uh, interestingly, most investigations, when they go on, the public doesn't know what's going on other than uh, maybe a little rumor here or there. In this case, we know a fair, we know a fair amount of what, uh, of what Mueller knows, albeit maybe a few months behind the curve. Um, so I think there you know, could be some elements of obstruction, in which case the interview with the president, if it takes place, I'm, I'm still convinced that somehow he's going to get out of it because the last thing his criminal lawyers want is a free-flowing interview uh, with Mueller's prosecutors who are armed with documents and having already interviewed dozens of witnesses and seeing what their client says. Uh, as he says it, they're going to be learning it. That's not what the criminal defense lawyers want to happen.
0: And there there are reports that people who have been interviewed by Mueller were shocked at the—by Mueller or his investigators—were shocked at the amount of information they confronted them with. So now, White House lawyer Ty Cobb, actually who was Trump's lawyer, says that um, he is going to be making the decision about whether or not Trump is going to sit for an interview with Mueller. What what are the possibilities here? Because it seems like Mueller would not give in to you know a written questions, a take home exam, sort of.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Um, ultimately, it's up to the client. I mean, it's up to the president of the United States whether he wants to do it. So, uh, Ty was giving him certainly some some back cover. Uh, the president can say, "Well, my lawyers told me not to do it." But you're right; Mueller's not going to agree to uh, to a take home exam and have the lawyers review the answers. If push comes to shove and you play this out, it's a game of chess. If the president says, no, I'm not going to sit down for an interview, now there's a fork in the road for Mueller. He can either walk away, which is not going to happen, or he can issue a grand jury subpoena. And now the courts are going to be involved because the president will try to quash that subpoena, saying a president doesn't have to sit before a grand jury, and the courts will be involved. There's precedent for uh, presidents to be interviewed. Uh, President Clinton was interviewed in in a lawsuit. So I think eventually uh, this president is going to have to answer questions. It can be in an interview with Mueller's uh, deputies and himself, or it can be before a grand jury. But sooner or later, he's going to answer questions.
0: I did a little research, and I could not find any instance where a president was successfully able to use executive privilege or some other legal construct to avoid either testifying before a grand jury or sitting down with investigators. Do you know of any instance where a court said no?
1: No, I think your research is is, is spot on, um, especially when the case pertains to having the president be a subject. If If the rule was a president can basically avoid interviews with investigators or grand jury, then the, you know, the old adage that we all have that no man is above the law, we're going to have to rewrite that. Um, and so I think eventually, uh, again, if push comes to shove, he's going to testify, and I don't think a court is going to save
0: him. I have to say, this remains continually interesting. There are always <laughs> twists and turns, and, uh, but wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall in uh, Robert Mueller's office?
1: <laughs> I think uh, most prosecutors who have been in the game for a while would love to have an interview Uh, with someone who just uh, speaks and then worries about the truth later. That's a pretty good interview to have.
0: Thanks so much for your insights, Jeff. That's Jeffrey Kramer. He's the managing director at the Berkeley Research Group, and he's a former federal and state prosecutor. States are starting to step up and defy the FCC's repeal of net neutrality rules. New York has become the second state to try to restore net neutrality principles by taking action against broadband companies. On Wednesday, Governor Andrew Cuomo signed an executive order barring state agencies from doing business with Internet providers that block rivals web traffic we or charge more for faster service, following a similar order from Montana's Governor Steve Bullock. Joining me is Daniel Lyons, professor at Boston College Law School. Dan, when the FCC rescinded the Obama-era net neutrality rules in December, it included a clause banning states from adopting their own standards. Do these executive orders get around that?
2: So it's not entirely clear, right? In one sense, this is better, I think, um, in from the sense of surviving litigation, better than the sort of litigation that's being considered in California, where the legislature is trying to uh, directly require broadband providers to abide by the rules that the FCC uh, repealed. My sense is those kinds of initiatives are probably preempted under the uh, language of the, uh, the FCC statute. But this executive order um, focusing on procurement laws and in run around, I think may actually uh, avoid the, uh, the preemption problem. It does, however, face other issues.
0: So the FCC has said it's going to take states to court over net neutrality. Do you expect that it will be legal battles that decide this issue?
2: I do, um, although I'm not, I, I don't know whether it be the FCC who ends up acting or broadband providers that are subject to the, um, the executive order rider.
0: Now, groups representing broadband providers reacted with alarm to the prospect of state regulations, saying basically that there can be 50 different regulations governing the Internet. Do they have a point?
2: Yeah, and I think that's actually the area where these uh, types of initiatives are probably most vulnerable. First, uh, one concern would be whether there is a state law on the books that prohibits the governor from attempting to regulate broadband. That's sort of a state-by-state issue. Uh, but secondly, there's a the concern with the Dormant Commerce Clause, which is a constitutional doctrine that prohibits states from engaging in regulatory activity that would uh, have an undue influence on interstate uh, conduct. The concern here is that uh, the internet is not something that's easily segmented into a series of uh, state-by-state networks. And attempts to do that, to impose uh, a rule of law on New York that's different than a rule of law in New Jersey or something like that, would destroy some of the benefits we get from having one internet and instead create a series of splinter nets.
0: So the best thing would be to have a congressional law on this?
2: Yeah, certainly the cleanest way uh, for net neutrality proponents to uh, overcome the FCC's rulemaking here is to adopt a uh, statute that works nationwide that would clarify once and for all what the rules are with regard to uh, broadband network management practices.
0: You mentioned California. Are there other state legislatures that are considering different approaches?
2: So I'm aware that California has a couple of different approaches on the board. Montana also recently enacted an executive order similar to the one we see uh, coming out of New York. I think the primary difference is that the Montana executive order imposed requirements on broadband providers, both with regard to uh, contracts, the way the broadband provider treats the state and also the way it treats individual residents within the state of Montana. My reading of the New York executive order seems only to apply to contracts with regard to state agencies and making sure that state agencies are treated net neutrally. Uh, it doesn't, uh, on its face, Uh, regulate the relationship between broadband providers and uh, New York consumers.
0: Will someone have to police net neutrality? Tell us about New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio's truth in broadband proposal.
2: So a big chunk of um, the fight over net neutrality, even independently of how traffic gets managed, right? Uh, One of the more important aspects is to make sure that whatever uh, broadband providers are doing, they're open about it. One of the uh, key instances that kicked off the net neutrality debate was a situation in 2008 when Comcast was uh, interfering with BitTorrent traffic. And Comcast had uh, an argument as to why um, it needed to do so, but I think one of the things that rubbed the FCC the wrong way is that they weren't transparent about what they were doing. Uh, They tried to uh, hide it, and when they were called out on it, uh, it looked really bad for them. One of the ways, and if you believe in a uh, competitive marketplace like the current FCC does, uh, one of the ways that you rely upon uh, competition to discipline uh, market actors is to make sure that consumers are making intelligent choices. So I think all aspects of that is part of, I think, what Mayor de Blasio is getting at. Whatever it is that you're doing, uh, broadband providers should make sure that they're disclosing it accurately to the public so the public is making an intelligent choice among their providers.
0: So speaking still of New York, Governor Cuomo's office compiled a list that said the telecommunication companies that do business with New York include AT&T, Verizon, and Frontier Communications. Explain how a rule in New York, which is such a large and populous state, would affect other states.
2: So the, the question is, Uh, which I don't know uh, completely the answer to because it's a little bit technical, is how easy it is for these broadband providers to segment their traffic, the traffic that stays intrastate versus the traffic that crosses state lines, right? Um, If it's, Possible for New York to, uh, for for providers within New York to treat New York traffic differently than non-New York traffic, then the argument for a dormant commerce cause prohibition uh, is a little bit weaker. Uh, but it's a little bit difficult to discern that because the path by which information gets from point A to point B over the internet is somewhat random. Right, packets travel over the fastest possible uh, pathway at any given millisecond, and the way part of a message. Uh, travels may be uh, different than the way another part of the message travels. If it winds up being impossible or very, very difficult to distinguish interstate from interstate traffic, then what it means is to comply with New York's requirement, broadband providers would have to uh, uh, treat traffic net neutrally, not just within New York, but everywhere else in order to avoid the allegation that they're out of compliance with New York's requirement. And that's when dormant commerce cause concerns become right. an issue.
0: Dan, we'll have to leave the dormant commerce clause, commerce clause for a while. Thanks so much. That's Daniel Lyons, a professor at Boston College Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.